Good morning, everyone. Glad to be back here. I have a couple of things that I have to show you because, uh, you know, it, you're, you'll, you'll see as we get into this a little bit. Um, I had a sports-rich weekend uh, this, uh, this past weekend. Um, Friday night, Kathy and I took our youngest son, uh, Micah, to the Cavaliers game. He is a big uh, Cleveland Cavaliers fan. And so we went down to uh, the, uh, uh, it used to be the Horizon Center, the Capital One Center now is what they call it. And we watched uh, the, um, the Cavaliers uh, beat the Wizards. If you're Wizards fans, I'm sorry. Um, uh, but uh, my son is a Cavaliers fan, and so that's who we were rooting for. He's also a LeBron James fan, and so uh, we were pretty happy to watch LeBron James put up 57 points in that, uh, in that little uh, uh, demonstration as well. Um, last night, we spent uh, the, the night cheering uh, my son on uh, at in a football game. Uh, his Jarrettsville Ravens were playing in the uh, semifinals for their league, and uh, they did not win, but they played a great game, and so we'll uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, but as you might be able to tell, um, I'm an Orioles fan. We'll just find places for these things here because there's not quite enough. Um, now this year that was a painful thing. Uh, those of you who are Orioles fans, you you get that. Um, this was not a not a fun year. Um, and for those of us who actually follow the team and follow the sport, it also wasn't terribly surprising. We kind of knew that this year was likely to go that way. We got off to a great start, and we thought, well, maybe, maybe. But then things started to look the way they did. And, you know, there's always next year. But if you're a real Orioles fan, as I am, the season never actually ends. They're, they're not playing baseball right now, but they're working on figuring out what is the 2018 team going to look like. And they never ask me. I don't understand why. If they did, they would be better. I'm confident of that. If they did, they would be better. But in the midst of all of this, 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 you know, sports weekend and 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 my 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 love for the Orioles and and hoping for a better off season this year than last year, it occurred to me that there are some analogies that get used often in the church that don't really hold up. And one of them is this: um, there there is a tendency to uh, to talk about. Christianity in terms of people playing on the field and folks in the stands. And the way it usually gets told is that what we need is we need for the Christians in the stands to get out of the stands and get down onto the field and get into the game. I'm here to tell you this morning that that's a bad analogy. And it's a really bad analogy for this reason, because you and I can't win this game. The game has been won by Jesus Christ. It's over and done. We are the fans celebrating that victory. We're actually supposed to be in the stands, but we're supposed to be in the stands showing our colors, screaming our approval, cheering our our winner, our victor on, and doing it in such a way that others want to be fans of the same team. That's our mission. And so I want to talk about that today, and I'm going to have to disassemble this a little bit. I didn't think that quite think that quite through as much as I needed to, because I don't have great eyes, and so I have to put all my notes on this, and I even have to put the, the Bible verses on this, because if I don't, I won't be able to read them. But I want to, want to share with you what I think is an extremely relevant passage of Scripture. 
um, that, that talks about or it sets up this, this analogy that I want to I use today that we are kind of like the 12th man in a football game. You've heard of the 12th man, right? That's the crowd. The crowd gets into the game. And if you've been to, uh, to many games, you will know that the crowd can sometimes change the outcome of the game. They can affect the play on the field. They can, they can get the team so fired up that things actually change. A couple of years ago, actually, that year, I had the privilege of of being uh, at the uh, in the in the uh, uh, division series with uh, the Orioles against the uh, the Tigers, and I think it was game two, and it was the eighth inning, and we scored eight runs in that inning to come back and win the game and ultimately won won the series, but. The crowd in that place was phenomenal. I have never heard such a loud noise in my life. I have never seen so many excited people in my life. Now, this is baseball, right? Okay? So it's not the most important thing in the world. I, 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 will, I will grant you that. But the reality is there was so much energy and enthusiasm on it within the stands that it did impact the way the players played the game. And the Orioles even said so themselves. They said afterwards, they were so pumped, they were so jazzed by all of the support that they got that they played differently. And for the, for the Tigers, they were actually a little bit, you know, they kind of drew in. They got a little tight. They got a little nervous. They got a little uh, overwhelmed by the experience. And so this, this idea that the 12th man um, really makes a difference in sports applies to us as well. Now, again, the victory is won. The, the game is over. The, we're, we're celebrating. But but the the part that we now play is not dependent upon it doesn't determine the outcome of the game itself what it does it is it determines who wants to be a fan who's going to who's going to join in with us who's going to come into the stands with us and cheer on our king our victor Jesus Christ that's our job now if we want to take a look at Luke chapter 10 we're going to see an example of how this plays out both in scripture and in uh, in in uh personal uh, application as well. Um, we're going we're gonna to take a look at that in a second. But what I want to point out, first of all, is that because we have this idea that the real players in the Christian game are the pastors and the worship leaders and the youth uh, leaders and the, the children's ministers and all that, we don't understand what it would look like to be a good fan, Right? We think, well, those are the ones who are on the field. They're the ones playing. Those are the ones who are really making the commitment to the game. And so we tend to downplay any other contribution that we can make. And we do that to our detriment. And we don't do that in accordance with the way Jesus has set this thing up. Because the reality is, you and I, every single one of us, makes a big difference. And everything we do and every place we go and everywhere we serve, and everywhere we go, we're supposed to display our colors. People are supposed to see we're on Jesus' team. And they're supposed to see it in such a way that not only do they know unequivocally that that's who, that's who we're celebrating, that's who we're, we're loyal to, but that they want to be loyal to him too. All right? So that's the scenario. Let's look, take a look at, at Luke chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1, after this, Jesus has is, is, is already sent out the 12, and he's, he's giving some additional instructions, and some other things have happened, and he's now about to send out more. And he says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, plentiful but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. 
Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. Chances are, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard that passage read before. You've probably heard that passage taught before. And one of the, the, the most often spoken about portions of that is this idea that Jesus is saying, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers. That's a valuable prayer, and it is one that Jesus told us to pray, and we ought to be praying it. But I want, you, want, you to, I want to point out a few other things. I want you to notice some other things. And the first one is, that, is this that these, these instructions are to other than the 12, all right? There, Jesus, there is Jesus, and then Jesus has the 12 disciples, the people that he handpicked to become kind of the new Israel, the, 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 um, the new image of Israel, the folks who were going to be the foundation of the church that he, that he was begin, beginning to build. But there are others involved in this early mission as well. They're other than the 12, and he picks out these 72 other than the 12, and says, I have a job for you. I have a different role for you. Different people have different roles in the church. Different people have different roles in Jesus' mission, and Jesus' ministry. He has a job for all of us. And it's not all the same. We don't have the same jobs. We all have different jobs. And that's a wonderful thing. It's part of the beauty of it. That's part of the fun of being a part of this. But the first visible trait that, that Jesus points out here is it that they are to go in teams, not solo. He sent them out two by two, right? Now, I cannot overemphasize this. This is hugely important. I have seen over the years so many people with, with just enormous evangelistic hearts, great heart for the Lord, great heart for lost people, and they want to go out and they want to share Christ with folks, and they want, to, they want to see people come to Christ, and their heart is exactly right place, but they go out by themselves, and far too often they don't come back. We need to approach this as a team. Now, if you have ever been to an Orioles game when they are playing, say, the Boston Red Sox or the Yankees, and especially many years ago when the Orioles were bad every year and the Yankees and Red Sox were not, um, it was a painful experience. You would go and there would be more people rooting for the visiting team than the home team. And you almost felt like, I can't cheer too much if our team does well because I'm in enemy territory. Well, you see, that's what happens when we go out by ourselves. We're in enemy territory. Sometimes we forget that. But we're in enemy territory. We need one another. We need the support and encouragement and prayer of one another as we go. And so this idea of going two by two is significant. It's important. I can't stress it enough. But I want you to notice something else. Jesus sends his followers to go out and announce the arrival of the king before the king gets there. Now, you've got to wrap your head around that for a bit. See, because we believe that Jesus is God, right? We believe that God is everywhere present, and God is working at all times in all places. And so it's, it's kind of hard to precede God anywhere, right? In fact, you've probably heard it taught. You've probably heard it preached that we can't. Everywhere we go, God precedes us. Well, that's true. But the knowledge and the awareness of Christ and the, and the knowledge and the awareness of who Jesus is and what he's done does not. And he sends us to announce the arrival of the king. Prepare the way for the Lord. 
That's our job. That's the job of the fans. On Friday night, we go down to uh, to uh, the Capital One Arena to watch the, the Wizards and the Cavaliers. We get in our seats before the game starts. The fans get in the seats before the game starts. They start putting up uh, you start playing music through the loudspeaker and put up videos. They're trying to get the, pan- the fans pumped up. They're trying to get everybody energized. All of that starts before the players hit the court. It's our job to announce the arrival of the king. Then the Spirit of God follows. Now, the Spirit isn't dependent upon us, but the Spirit does, in fact, use us, right? Uses us constantly. He's always willing to work with us if we're willing to submit ourselves to him play according to his playbook. But the followers precede the arrival of the spirits. The fan, if the, you know, the fans show up before tip-off, Christians show up with the gospel before the spirit arrives. And the twelfth, just the way the twelfth man impacts the play on the field or the sixth man impacts the play on the court, depending upon what sport we're talking about, the fans encourage others to participate, to take notice, to stand up and say, hmm, I wonder what it would be like to be on that team. And Jesus tells us the famous gives us the famous advice: ask the Lord, uh, ask the Lord for workers. But what does He say next? He says the, the the spirit is or the the har- the field is ripe for harvest, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord to send out workers, and go. He doesn't separate the two. It's actually all one sentence. <laughs> Ask the Lord to send out workers. Ask the Lord for workers and go. In other words, you're one of the workers. He's commissioning these 72 to be part of what we're praying for. We're asking God to send workers out into the harvest. We're asking God to send representatives, to send fans out into the world to make other fans of Jesus. But in the process, we're supposed to be a fan, visible, noticed, apparent, encouraging others to be a part of that being visible, letting others see that we are on Jesus' team. Now, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He's, he's, very, he's very upfront. He's very open and honest about it. He says, look, there's going to be some, some opposition, right? He says, I'm sending you out like sheep into, you know, into the territory of wolves, sheep among wolves, right? There's going to be opposition. You've experienced that. I've experienced that. Whether you're a believer or not, you've experienced that. But if we experience that because we're believers, because our faith, because we're wearing our colors, because our faith is on display, that's a very different kind of thing than if we're just experiencing opposition in the world because, well, the world's a broken place. But we're, we're going to experience that. So he tells us that's going to happen. Don't be discouraged. Don't be dismayed. Don't quit when, when things don't go the way you hope that they will or don't go the way you think they will. I got it. I know that's going to happen. I'm not asking you to win the battle. I'm not asking you to win the game. Jesus is not asking us to win what he's already won. He's asking us to cheer on the team. The outcome is his, not ours. And then the next thing he says, I think, requires some explanation as well. He says, go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. Now, I really like that he says that for a couple of reasons. One, I don't know about you, but I can come up with all sorts of excuses for why I do not do things that I do not want to do. Um, there are all manner of things that need to be done around my house right now. 
but I don't have the right tools, right? So I can put it off. I can, I can say, well, you know, I, need, I, I have to get the right tools. Once I get the right tools, then I can, then I can do that. Well, every once in a while, I'll actually go down to, to Home Depot or Lowe's, and I'll buy the tool I need. And then I come back, and, well, okay, now I have the right tool, but I don't really know how to use it. And so then I have to pull up YouTube and watch some videos on how to use it and how to fix what it is I'm trying to fix. And there's, all, there's just like this never-ending line of excuses for why I'm not doing the very thing that I need to be doing. We do that in the church, too. You know, I would share my faith if I just knew, you know, the Bible by heart from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. You're never going to know the Bible by heart from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. Get over it. You know, I would, I would share my faith with this person, but he's just, you know, he's like really smart, and he always comes up with these great, these great objections to faith, and, and I just don't know how to answer it. You're never going to be able to answer every criticism. You're never going to be able to answer every objection. God didn't call you to do that. God called you to show your colors, to say despite the fact that you have those doubts, despite the fact that that you have those objections, and despite the fact that I can't even answer some of them, I still believe in Jesus, and I'm still committing myself to following him. That's what we're supposed to do. So don't take a purse or bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. In other words, don't depend upon resources that Jesus hasn't given you to do what Jesus has asked of you. We're good. We're really, really good at excuses. And he's taken them away. One of the things I think happens in North America a lot, I've studied the church for a long time, um, and I've studied the church in the North American context in particular, but I've also studied it around the world. And one of the things that I've noticed, one of the major differences between the church around the world and the church in North America is that in North America, we often depend very much upon the resources that we have. We depend upon, upon you know, nice facilities, and we depend upon uh, paid staff, and we depend upon youth programs and children's programs, and we depend upon you know, a, a, a vibrant worship ministry. And all of those things are good things. Every last one of them is a good thing. I'm grateful for all of them. I've been impacted positively by all of them. But when we would depend upon those things, we're depending on someone other than Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. I used to do uh, uh, ministry in Senegal. And one of the things I absolutely loved about seeing other believers in Senegal is that they didn't depend upon anything but the Spirit of God. Because they didn't have anything else to depend upon but the Spirit of God. Stripped of all resources, stripped of all power, stripped of all influence, all they could do was trust God. And so that's what they did. And you know what? They saw miracles. They saw God do absolutely amazing things. When we depend upon our resources, very often the message gets lost by the resources themselves. It gets replaced. Have you, heard the, have you heard the expression, the medium is the message? It's absolutely true in this country. If we, if we you know, razzle and dazzle and, 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 and make it really cool and hip and reverent and all of that, the message can get lost. It's real simple. The world is broken. God is in the process of fixing it through Jesus Christ. And belief in him and belief in that and putting our faith and trust in him, and beginning to follow him, and joining in his mission, becoming a fan, wearing his colors, and, and marching off in celebration of the victory that's already won but hasn't been finished yet, the world will be restored. 
going to happen. I know it's going to happen. I have no doubt it's going to happen. When Jesus comes back, everything is going to get fixed. So why would I not celebrate that? Why would I not tell people about that? Why would I not let others know this is the good news that you need to know about too? Because this kind of news actually changes your life. It really does. It really does. And then that last little line there, do not greet anyone on the road. i got to be honest with you, that one puzzled me. Because Jesus is kind of a party animal, right? If you, if you read through the Gospels, he's the guy who's always getting invited to parties. Okay, anytime anybody throws a party, he's there. He shows up. Whether he's invited or not, he shows up. <clears throat> and nobody seems to mind when he does show up because he's the life of the party. He just is. But here he is, as much as he practices hospitality, as much as he talks about hospitality, being hospitable, and using that as a means of representing what the, the kingdom is going to look like in its fulfillment, here he says, don't greet anyone on the road. <clears throat> in other words, when I've called you to go to the stadium and cheer for my team, go to the stadium and cheer for my team. Don't be distracted. Don't let the world take your eyes off of Christ. Don't let your eyes wander. Don't let your heart wander. Don't let your thoughts wander. Stick to the cause. Jesus did not call us to go down on the court and play, you know, Friday night, if I had tried to go replace LeBron James, I would have been arrested, physically injured, or both. Beyond that, I would have been patently stupid. It would have been just a really dumb thing to do. Now, as an Orioles fan, I will confess, there are times, there have been times, I have said, and I might even have meant it, I could pitch better than that. But no, there's no way on earth I could pitch better than that. The worst Orioles pitcher throwing the worst pitch any Orioles pitcher has ever thrown would still be better than the best pitch I could ever God did not call me to go play for the Orioles. He may have not even called me to be a fan, but I am a fan. <laughs> and I can do that well. I can do that well. So we got to, don't get distracted. Don't, don't get all caught up in what you don't have. Don't, don't get all caught up in what you don't have. Instead, use what you do, what God has given you to celebrate him. Well, we got to keep going. Verse 5. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. Again, a a familiar passage of Scripture. Um, And you have probably heard, or you may have heard, the term person of peace. The idea of this person of peace actually comes from this passage. And what it, what it essentially means is that out there somewhere in, in the mission field, we talk about this, this concept, in the mission field or in evangelism, we, we realize that there are people out there who have access to relational circles that we don't have access to. Folks who are not yet believers but who have social connections. And they have influence within those social connections. And if we can get those people to accept Christ, then it's very likely that all of those social circles will wind up accepting Christ as well. 
It happens more in other parts of the world, in Senegal, for instance, or really anywhere where there's a tribal uh, uh, structure to the society. Um, but, but in Senegal, because I'm familiar with that, you go to Senegal and you sit down in Chancasil and you talk to the elders of the village. That's who you go to talk to. That's, that's who you want to make inroads with. And you begin sharing who Jesus is with those, with those elders because you know full well if the elders accept Christ, then everybody in the village is going to accept Christ because they follow their elders. They trust their elders. If the elders say Jesus is God, then Jesus must be God. If the elders say Jesus actually died for our sins, well, then Jesus must have, in fact, died for our sins. That's how that works. Now, does everybody in that village come to a genuine faith in Christ? I don't know. But is everyone at least now open to it? Absolutely. So that's progress any way you look at it. Well, that's where this comes from. That, the, the idea of this person of peace comes from that. But I want to point out something that never gets pointed out. And that is that the person of peace is not the focus of this passage. It's the ones going. It's the missionaries going. It's the 72 being sent that is the focus of this passage, not the person of peace. It's not the bridge of the relationship to other words. It, it's the, the, the ones Jesus is sending. And the, the way in which he is sending them is to go and stay and relate. Let me show you again. When you enter a house, first of all, we're getting really intimate now, right? Now, households in this culture and this time were a little bit different than they are today. They were more public places than they are today. So, for instance, uh, when you hear people talking about, you know, house church and, and how house church is, is, is one of the great ways to reach our culture, and it's, it's one of the ways, and I have no qualms with house church whatsoever. But I, but I want people who are, who are advocates for house church to understand that the house in that day was very different than the house in this day. Today, it's a more private space, right? People don't come and go into your house trying to sell you stuff, right? Or buy stuff from you. That doesn't, you, people, your doors are not always open, right? Where strangers come in and say, hey, I'm here to, right? Well, maybe it is. And it, God bless you if that's your situation. I lock my doors at night. I don't know about you. But in, in that day and age, the house was a public space. People came and went. You conducted business in the house. You did everything in the house. And so that was a place where you could, in fact, share your faith, and others would hear it, and others would come in contact with believers and they would experience the love and peace of Christ through the life of other people. Today, it's a little harder to do it that way. But when you enter a house, so there's this, this intimate reality. There's this, there's this relational aspect here going on. When you enter the house, if someone uh, who had promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there. Stay there. So many times, we expect people to come to Christ because of an event. And again, I've got nothing against events where we're promoting the name of Jesus, where we're celebrating who Jesus is. I got, I got no problem with that. But so many times we depend upon that. When the very model that Jesus is establishing for all of those outside of the original 12, right? The very model he's establishing is go stay with people. Do life with them. Get to know them. Spend time with them so that they can get to know you. Let them see Christ in you, which doesn't usually happen at a block party. Nothing wrong with block parties, but it doesn't usually happen there. But it might happen over the span of several months of sharing dinners, 
and coffees and conversation and hopes and dreams. Right? That's what he's establishing. That's how he's setting this whole thing up. This is a long-term relational strategy. It's about moments, not events. And in part, and again, I want you to get this too, in part, our wages, he says the, the worker is worth his wages, right? Our wages, in part, are the relationships that we gain as a result of this, the brothers and sisters that we gain as a result of sharing the gospel so that others become our brothers and sisters. When they accept Christ, they become family. Our family grows. Families usually celebrate when they grow, right? We celebrate when a child is born. We celebrate when someone marries into the family. We celebrate usually when families grow. Well, it's no different in the church. We are, in fact, a family. That's how we were set up. We are a family. We are God's family. Brothers and sisters. And so we need to be celebrating when, when others join the family. And our wages, part of our reward is exactly that. We get to celebrate this. We get to meet new people. We get to fall in love with new people. We get to, to, to learn to, to love and be loved by others besides ourselves. And it doesn't just happen in worship or small groups or even community events. Those are all good things, but they're not the only things. We're to be active and attractive in the world. We're supposed to wear our colors, not just when we show up for worship. We're supposed to wear them there, too. But we're supposed to wear them out there as well. It's supposed to be visible. Well, let's keep going. When you enter a town and you are welcome, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your own town we wipe from our feet is a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Now I have to be honest with you. Verse 8, when you enter a home, when you enter a town and are welcome, eat what is offered to you, has caused me problems. I've been to Senegal. Rule number one, if you go to Senegal, my daughter's been to Niger, so she can tell you, she can uh, affirm this, this, uh, uh, this rule. Rule number one, never ask what you're being served. You don't want to know. Just eat it and say thank you. You have no earthly idea what you are being served, and you don't want to know. Although, to be honest with you, the most disturbing thing I've ever eaten was actually the, one of the, time, the first time I went to Scotland. I'm not even going to talk about it because it will be bad for all of us. Um, but here's the deal. Jesus tells the 72, eat what is offered to you. Rewind a bit. Who are these people? What is their nationality? What is their religious heritage? They're Jews, right? Do Jews have really liberal dietary rules. They're known for very, very strict dietary rules, right? There's a whole long list of wonderful things, in my opinion, that they're not allowed to eat. Jesus says, eat whatever is offered to you. Now, because of where they're going, it's not likely that they're going to be offered, you know, pulled pork sandwiches, although that would have been awesome. Um, they're probably not going to be offered crab either. But when Jesus says, eat whatever is offered to you, to people who cannot eat whatever is offered to them, 
That's a rule changer. That's a game changer. He's making a really important point, and one, one that we very seldom pay any attention to because we love Acts chapter 10 where the sheet comes down out of heaven and God speaks to Peter and says, don't call anything I've made unclean. Take it and eat. And we get also, that, that's our excuse, we can now eat crabs. Yes. Eat whatever is offered. You see, Jesus makes a stark distinction between faith in him and the practice of religion. He makes an enormous distinction between faith in him, following him, doing what he's asking and calling us to do, versus following a religion. And he's not asking any of us to follow a religion. Not one of us. He doesn't want us to be religious people per se. He wants us to be faithful people. He wants us to be devoted to him. He wants us to be his fans, his cheerleaders, not because he needs it, he doesn't, but because that's what we were put on earth to do. And because all the folks out there who aren't cheering him on need to hear it because they need to join in. We want them to be at the victory parade too. We want them to join in the celebration. And there is a temptation among all people, and there has always been a temptation among all people to trade in faith for religion. All of us are tempted by that. We need to be aware of that. We need to step back. We need to, we need to examine ourselves from time to time. We need to ask ourselves, am I being more faithful to the religious tradition that I'm a part of, or am I being more faithful to Christ? Eat whatever is offered. Eat whatever is offered. It's part of representing Jesus well. But the next thing he tells his fans to do is to heal the sick. Now, I don't know about you, but God has not given me the supernatural ability to heal people. I've never laid hands on someone and had them be healed. He may have done that with you. I don't know. Um, He has not done that with me. But there are more ways to heal people than that, right? And by the way, I do believe that that happens. I I have no no qualms with that. God is God. God is a miracle-working God. He is all-powerful, so I have no reason to believe that he's ever stopped doing things like that. I believe he still does. But there are more ways to heal than simply, you know, placing hands or anointing someone with oil and, and, and seeing them actually physically healed. There are more ways to heal. How about presence? Have you ever been hurting? Have you ever been in a place where, where you were just overwhelmed with sorrow or grief? You lost a loved one or something of that nature. Something traumatic has happened. And just simply having another believer nearby with you who would sit with you and who would cry with you if you, if they, if you needed that or would laugh with you if you needed that, would just be there with you. Have you ever experienced that? And was that not healing? Did that not restore you? Did that not help? Did that not ease the pain, ease the suffering? Did that not provide you with some life that had been drained away? We were created to relate to one another that way. That's healing. That's real healing. Don't discount that. Don't play that out. Don't play that down and say, no, well, that's, you know, okay, that's, if, that's all, if that's the best I got. No, that's real stuff. That's real stuff. What about presence? What about encouragement? Ever been around somebody who was just really down? 
were able to, to give a word that brightened their day a little bit? Isn't that real? Isn't that a real blessing? Isn't that a tangible lift to their spirit? That's real healing. What about prayer? Do, do, do you believe that God heals through prayer? I do. What about that? I have a sister. So I have two sisters. My sister Dawn, who is closest to me in age. Um, uh, she is older. Than, I'm the youngest of five, but she's closest to me in age. Uh, was diagnosed on, on December 15, uh, 20, what year is this? 20, uh, so 2015. Um, no, 2016. Um, what year was it? <laughs> you know, I got up at 4.15 this morning because my alarm clock is, uh, it, it, it's supposed to automatically sync with the atomic clock somewhere in Boulder, uh, Colorado. And, and this thing's like 15 years old, and it's always done it. It's so whenever the, uh, the time changes, I don't have to touch it. It just changes. It just does it. Well, this morning it didn't. So I set it for 5.15 thinking, man, I'm gonna, I, my body's going to feel like I slept till 6.15. It's going to be awesome. I got up. My alarm clock goes off at 5.15. I'm, I'm feeling wonderful. I've I got an extra hour of sleep, and I'm looking around and looking at all the other clocks in the house. They all say 4.15. What's up with this? I, well, my clock didn't reset last night, so I'm, I'm sleep deprived. So what year was it? It was 2015. Okay. December 15, 2015. Two significant things happened in my life. The, the, the most significant was that my father died that day. Um, the second, this is like the, the red-letter worst day in the history of my family. Uh, the second was the same day my sister Dawn learned that she er, was diagnosed with terminal uh, kidney cancer. Um, not given very long to live. Um, so, you know, we, we went through the grieving process with my father. We, we, we buried him. We did all the things that we needed to do to, to honor him and to, to begin, uh, sorting that out as a family. Um, my, my, my mother had died when I was much, much younger. Um, my stepmother died three months later. So it was just kind of a, a lot of things going on all at once. But, but here's the deal. My sister Dawn, who is 10 years older than me, was diagnosed with, terminal cancer and given, you know, three to 36 months to live. So what did we do? We started praying. And we started asking a whole bunch of other people pray. And we started beginning to plan and live as if those prayers were already answered. We went on a cruise. The, 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 all the siblings, the surviving siblings went on a cruise and their, and their spouses. We went on a cruise and we acted like she's already healed. Um, and we've continued to live life as if she's already healed. Well, uh, two weeks ago, she got her most recent scans in, and uh, in the interim between the, the original diagnosis and then, the, the cancer had done what cancers do. It had spread. It had spread to her lungs. It spread to her brain, and, and so things were just really not looking well. None of the medicines that she'd been using, uh, had been taking, were working. It, just, it was just not going well. Well, two weeks ago, uh, she, she gets everything scanned, and all the tumors have shrunk or died. Don't tell me prayer doesn't work. Don't tell me prayer is not a way to heal. Now, is she going to be forever rid of this? I don't know. The Lord knows and no one else. But I thank God that two years after the fact, she's healthy. She's good. She got to celebrate a, 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 the, the wedding of her, of her, uh, her oldest child um, and got to do it feeling good. She got to celebrate a, you know, a cruise with, the, with, with her siblings. She's going on and living because she believes 
God answers prayer. That's healing. That's real healing. That's real stuff. So there are other ways to do that. And we need to remember this. The part of healing, especially in the context of this passage, part of healing is receiving Christ. Right? If our ultimate need, if, if people, if the, the greatest need of humanity is salvation, then the greatest priority of those who are already saved should be the gospel. If the greatest need of humanity is salvation, then our greatest priority ought to be proclaiming the gospel, ought to be sharing the gospel with other people. That ought to be our greatest priority. But he doesn't tell us to do that by being the Bible answer man or answer woman. He doesn't tell us to do that by being the greatest apologetic on the planet. He doesn't tell us to do that by being so obnoxiously right all the time that no one will dare question or anything that we say. He doesn't tell us to do it. He says, go eat with people. Go hang out with people. Go love them the way I love them. You see, we need pastors. We do. We need youth pastors and, and, and worship leaders. We need missionaries. We need all those people. But we need people who wear the colors out on the streets that they live in and when they go to work, wherever it is that they go to work and at the schools that they go to. We need people who are unashamedly wearing the colors and cheering on our victor in such a way that other people say, I want to be at the celebration parade too. That's what he's calling us to do. That's what he's asking us to do. And the reality is we know some people are going to reject it, right? Some people are going to reject the gospel. They just, they're going to. They always have and they always will. Jesus tells us that, you know. Some are going to. And so shake the dust off your feet. Now, what's that all about? In that day and age, what that was was a very, very visible symbol that, oh, my goodness, you have no idea what you just did. That's, that was the whole point of it, was to get their attention, to make them think about, maybe we should reconsider this. Maybe this is a decision we don't want to make. Now, he doesn't say curse them, right? He doesn't say you're all, you know, to, 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 to hold your hand out over them and tell them they're all going to hell. He doesn't tell, us to, doesn't tell them to do that. He says, make them know the significance of the decision that they've made. When they reject Christ, let them know, first of all, that it isn't about you. It's about Christ. It's not that they're rejecting you. It's that they're rejecting Christ. And make sure that they understand how significant it is. And it is one of the ways we know how significant it is He says, be sure of this. Let them know that the kingdom of God has come near. And this is really, all of that's preamble. Um, And this is really the point that I wanted to make this morning. When you, as a believer in Christ, enter into a home or the workplace or the neighborhood or a conversation with someone who is not a believer in Christ, the kingdom of God has drawn near to that person because you are a kingdom citizen. The kingdom of God has drawn near because you are a kingdom citizen. So we are kingdom people. So, so what do kingdom people do? We move towards one another in love. We move towards others in love. He sent them out. Notice that? He didn't say, hey, let's have a big pep rally and invite all the towns in the, you know, in the area to come to us. He sent the 72 out to them. We move toward, that's really what love is. If you, want, if you want a really simple definition of what love is, is, love is moving towards another. In love, God moved towards us by sending his son. 
right? In love, we move towards others so that they might experience the Son as well. That's how that works. That's what love is. Move towards one another. Move towards others. Eat with them. Talk with them. Listen to them. There would be so much, so many more people who would come to know Christ if we would just get better at listening. Pray for them. Heal them. We cheer the arrival of the king. That's our job. We are in the stands, but that's where we're supposed to be. We're not on the court. Jesus is on the court, and he's already won. We are in the stands cheering on and encouraging others to cheer with us. We wear the kingdom colors, and we make the kingdom visible. That's our calling. That's what Christ has called us to do, to make his kingdom visible to those who haven't seen it yet, those who need to see it yet. We are called to be visible fans of Christ Jesus. Jesus doesn't ask us to win the game. He's already done that. He asks us to multiply the fans in the arena. So, this morning, if you feel like you haven't been called to preach or teach, or you don't have enough Bible knowledge or, 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 or the, 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 the other gifts that, that you need in order to do that, to, to, be a, to, be, to lead in worship, to play an instrument, to, to, to sing, to, to, to teach children, to teach youth. God's not asking you to do those things. If God wants you to do those things, he will give you the abilities that you need to do those things. But God has given you the ability to wear his colors wherever you go. He has given you the ability to let others see Christ in you, to make the kingdom visible. That's our job. It really is. And I want to encourage you this morning, that no matter who you are, no matter what you do for a living, no matter where you live, no matter where you spend your days, uh, hours during the week, you can be that kingdom presence. And you can make just as big a difference. In fact, very often you make a far bigger difference than, say, what I'm doing right now. I've seen it. I've seen God do it. I know he's still in the business of, of redeeming people. What a privilege it is to participate in that. You don't need the resources. You don't need more training. You don't need more education. You just need to go. The Spirit of God is with you. What more do you need? Let's pray.